Man, I love this time of the year. I love this time of the year. You know, if we can just get all the, the stress of shopping out of the way and all the stuff that distracts us in life and then truly enjoy the reason for the season, that's what it's all about. It's all about celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ, celebrating him in our lives and his incarnation, and then enjoying our family, enjoying food, and enjoying friends, enjoying church. Amen? That's, that's what it's all about. So I hope that um, the last two Sundays we, we, I taught on the birth of Christ. We had the children bless us this morning. I'm going to continue this morning, and my hope is that I bring your heart back to the center of what Christmas is all about and the incarnation of Christ. So turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and Miss Stephanie will bring you a Bible. And uh, we're in Luke chapter 2 this morning. Two weeks ago, we looked at the Gospel of John. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Last week, we looked at Matthew. And this week, uh, we're looking at um, Luke chapter 2. I began Monday thinking I was going to teach uh, half of Luke chapter 1 and then Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. By Tuesday, I narrowed it down to Luke uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And by Wednesday, through, through study, man, the more you study the Word of God, the more you can get out of it, okay? But by Thursday, I narrowed it down to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So we're looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And the title of my message this morning is From the Throne to the Trough. So let's read those verses um, together. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken in all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on the way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while... They were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. So again, the title of my message this morning is From the Throne to the Trough. But when you hear that, I imagine when I first said that to you all ago, from the throne to the trough, what did you think of? You thought of heaven's throne to the trough. But I want to talk about a different uh, angle. I want to look at this from a different angle, from a different throne to a trough. Because we spent the last two Sundays, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at John, the Word became flesh, and we talked about Jesus coming from heaven to earth, taking on flesh, coming in the incarnation. And then last week, we looked at Matthew. But uh, what I want to do this morning in looking at Luke is I want to look at the five people that are mentioned in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. From Caesar on his throne in Rome, to Christ in the manger of Bethlehem. What I want you to see this morning in these uh, seven verses is I want you to see the descent. The, de the descent. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, is like an upside-down triangle. It's like an upside-down triangle. Luke here is using a literary device to show the most powerful man in Rome to the smallest, weakest infant in the manger. So we have a triangle for you that we want to show. This is a literary device that Luke is using in verses 1 through 7. And if you notice, 
He goes from the most important person in the known world. This, of course, is looking at it from the natural realm, from the worldly point of view. Because remember what the Gospel of Luke is, who's, who's the Gospel of Luke written to? It's written to Gentiles. So in these verses, he starts in verse 1 with talking about Caesar Augustus, who was the very first Caesar, the most powerful man. He was worshipped as God. Then Quirinius, who was Caesar's puppet king over Syria, he was a, a Roman aristocrat. And he ruled over that region where uh, Christ was born. And then verse 4, we have Joseph, the carpenter from Nazareth. Matter of, and by the way, this is the first time Nazareth is mentioned in the Bible. It's not mentioned at all in the Old Testament. And then you have Mary, verse 5, the unmarried woman with child. Matter of fact, people probably looked at her in that day with shame because she was unmarried, but she was with child. So it goes from the most important person all the way down to verse 7, Jesus the infant. So that's how, I'm ta- that's how I'm teaching this morning from the angle. Because Luke is writing to Gentile believers. He's given them the perspective of Jesus' life from a Gentile perspective. And he's showing them, he's starting with the known ruler of the world. And no doubt the audience of Luke that he, he, he wrote this gospel to had... Uh, very clear understanding of the authorities and, and who Caesar was. So that was huge in their mind. So y'all ready to dive into it? All right, let's do it. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now in these days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. I find this fascinating that in Luke's gospel here in Luke chapter 2, the story begins not in the manger, but it begins with the most powerful, sovereign ruler of the known world at that time. No doubt the, the, the readers who, who received the Gospel of Luke would have been like, whoa, he's, he's bringing Caesar Augusta, Augustus into this. That would have been a, 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 a historical marker for them to understand what was taking place. You see, Caesar Augustus was the emperor of the Roman Empire, from 29 B.C. to 14 A.D. His real name was Gaius Octavius. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. You see, Caesar Augustus was just a title. That was not his name. Caesar means emperor. Augustus means holy and revered. He ruled the Roman Empire for four decades. What month is named after him? August. The month, our month of August in our calendar is named after Caesar Augustus. He was a very smart man, a very brilliant man. He formed a military unit called the Praetorian Guard, which is also mentioned in Philippians chapter 1. He initiated the Pax Romana, which brought 200 years of peace and security to Rome. He accepted the title Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest of a religion. He is the one that initiated the worship. Of Caesars, of the Caesars as God. He was the most powerful Caesar in human history. You know, being in a place of great power can be very dangerous because in most cases, there is little or no humility. And again, I've talked about this before. The soul of the President of the United States is just as important as the soul of, of our soul and, and the soul of Skid Row. All people will be held accountable to God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It's appointed once a man to die and then face judgment. 
There was a judgment awaiting Caesar Augustus. There's a judgment awaiting you and I. Now, thankfully, we've received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We will not be held. Our sin has been completely forgiven. But we will all stand before God. But there's something about rich folks and people that are in high and lofty places. Their eyes and their, their life get so caught up in the world that they lose sight. They lose sight of eternity. And we can't do that, family. We can't do that. Whether you're a Governor McMaster or President Biden or, or anybody on this planet, all the 7.8 billion people on this planet, they need to remember that they have an appointment in eternity to stand before the Lord. So you have Caesar Augustus. Remember, he's at the top. He's the most powerful man. He's at the top of our triangle that I showed you a while ago. Let's look at number two, the second person down. Because you can see this, that they're, they're progressive. In um, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Caesar Augustus. And now Luke, writing to the church, brings attention to the next person. Let's look at it, verse 2. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Who was Quirinius? He was a very powerful man. His name, his full name is Publius Sophius Quirinius. He was the Roman governor over Syria after Herod Archelaus. He served two terms, 6 to 4 BC, and also during the time period of Acts chapter 5. And what was he? He was a puppet king of Caesar. His job was to be the representative for Caesar in that known region and to collect taxes and to maintain the peace. See, what you need to understand in the Roman world is the, these people, they bowed to these men. And to defy them, you would lose your life to defy Caesar or to defy those who are in authority. One of our favorite verses on salvation is Romans 10.9. Which Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. We love that verse. Do you love that verse? I love that verse. But in the first century, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 was a death sentence for you to confess Jesus is Lord. Because in the known world, there was only one Lord and his name was Caesar, Caesar Augustus. And to defy him would, could cost you your life. It could cost you exile. You know, we're going to be studying the book of Revelation starting January 1st. And where is John at when he writes this book? He's on the island of Patmos. He's in exile. He is a political prisoner because he said, Caesar's not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And it cost him his life. It cost many early Christians in the first couple of centuries their life. Why does Luke mention these guys? For our, for our deep thinkers, for our history buffs, why does Luke mention uh, Quirinius and Caesar Augustus? Because you and I need to understand that Jesus' birth is a true historical event. Okay, This is not Narnia. This is not Middle Earth. This is the real world that we live in. It took place. It's a true historical event. And because of that, we can trust the word of God, okay? The Bible is precise. It's true. It's accurate. And you can trust it. Many people try to separate the secular world from the biblical world. 
But that's just not the case. They intertwine throughout all the Bible. From Babylon to Rome to Pontius Pilate to, to, to Caesar Augustus to Quirinius, we see them constantly intersecting because the things of the Bible took place in this world that we live in, okay? This is God's world, and we're living in it. And we can trust the scriptures. Listen to what 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Jesus is not a myth. He's not a tale. He's true. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, nothing can be done against the truth, but only for the truth. You can bank your life on the Lord Jesus Christ because he is real and he is true. So we're, going, we're working our way down the triangle from the most important to the bottom of the barrel. I say that in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of the world, we're, we're working our way from the most important, most prominent person to the weakest, smallest, frail person in the natural realm anyway. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. And it says, And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. I got an entire page on this one verse right here. This is what happens when you study the scriptures. But it says, Everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. What was the purpose of a census in first century, the Roman world? It was one, to record the population to pay taxes, and to figure out and, and take inventory of the people to figure out who was of military age. Okay, That was the purpose of the census. It was for the known king in the world to find out who, his people, who the people are and make sure he gets the money, reaching in their back pocket, getting their money. But to see the true significance of verse 3, you have to zoom out. You can't look at this very closely. you got to zoom out to 10,000 feet and see the big picture. You see, there's a problem. There's a problem with the story that's taking place. Where is Joseph and Mary at? They're in Nazareth. They, they, they are in Nazareth. And the problem is God prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So he's not in the right place. Micah 5, 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth is from long ago, from the days of eternity. So the prophecy said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, but Mary is with child, with Joseph, and they're in Nazareth. So God in his sovereignty reaches down and turns the heart of Caesar, Augustus, to initiate uh, this census in order to fulfill prophecy, to get his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the womb of Mary, 70 miles south. Little did Caesar know when he issued the decree, he was serving the purposes of God. The decree was ultimate, ultimately God's plan to move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem in order to fulfill the prophecy of Micah. See, you can trust in every single verse in the Bible because they're all true and they will all come to pass because it's God's word. Now think about this. Caesar Augustus, 
He's on his throne in Rome. He's ruling and reigning over the whole world with an iron fist. But listen to what Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. See, God is in complete control, and he rules and reigns even in the affairs of nations and worlds and leaders. God will move heaven and earth to fulfill his plans. Nobody can thwart his plans. Nobody, no people, no nation, no nothing can stop the creator of the universe. His plans will be fulfilled. And you and I, you and I need to keep this in mind as we see the world moving further and further away from God. You and I need to remember verse 3 of Luke chapter 2 here. God is still sovereign over all the worldly leaders, and they will bow to his plan. And they, by the way, have no choice in the matter. That's how sovereign God is. That's how much God is in complete control that his plans will prevail. And at the same time, our, 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 our government, our political leaders, even as ungodly as they are, <clears throat> we need to pray for them. We need to pray fervently for their salvation because they have an appointment, just like we do. They have an appointment one day to stand before a holy and righteous God. And without the righteousness that comes from trusting in Christ, they will perish on judgment day. So we need to pray fervently, number one, for their salvation. Jesus loves them and died on the cross for them also, and we need to pray fervently. But the census, verse 3, is, is uh, God's way of m- fulfilling prophecy and moving Joseph and Mary 70 miles south from Nazareth to uh, Bethlehem. Let's take a look at verse 4. Verse 4, we come to number 3 on the, on the upside-down triangle. Number 4 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and family of David. So the third person we're presented to, we're, we're, we're given in this passage, is Joseph. Joseph was a descendant of David. He was the husband of Mary. But there was nothing special about Joseph. Joseph was just a common man. He was a carpenter. But Matthew tells us that he was a righteous man. That he was a true believer. He was completely committed to following the Lord. And we see that uh, God has to come to him in a revelation, in a dream, to show him the big picture. But once God showed it to him, Joseph stepped out and he walked in obedience. He walked in obedience to the things of God. He, and he didn't, his faith was a little shaken. You know, you would be too, gentlemen, if, if your wife-to-be who you hadn't had sex with was pregnant, but the Lord revealed to him that it was from the Holy Spirit, and this was the way God was going to come into the world. And so God is leading him. Where do they go to? It says, verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea. Nazareth, 75 miles north of Bethlehem. Many scholars believe it was not a city, but it was a small village. It was a small village of outcasts and poor people, less than 200 people. In John 1.46, Nathaniel says this, Can anything good 
come out of Nazareth. The Greek word for good in John 1.46 is agathos. It, it talks about uh, a moral good. Look it up. It talks about a, a, a good morality. So John 1.46 even implies that Nazareth was a dark place. It was a dark place of, of sin, debauchery, outcast. But in the midst of this dark village, Nazareth, there is a godly Joseph and Mary. There's a godly Joseph and Mary. And God reaches down in the midst of this village, in the midst of this darkness, and chooses Joseph and Mary to bring his son into the world. So we have Joseph. Very little is known about Joseph. Uh, we most scholars believe that Joseph was there in the early life of Jesus, but at some point he passed away. He was probably not there at his death and resurrection. You know, um, only Mary was. But he's very he's mentioned very briefly, and there's little known about him. And the city of Nazareth. The city of Nazareth is only mentioned in the New Testament. There's there's no mention of it at all in the Old Testament. But it says they went to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Let's look at number four. Number four is found in verse five. It says in verse five, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child, Mary. Mary, did you know? Y'all heard that song before? There's so much the scripture reveals to us about Mary. And there's a lot of stuff that's twisted about Mary in our world. She's never, they never, she's never asked to be venerated or exalted or prayed to. That's not biblical at all. Mary was most likely a teenager. She was a teenager unknown to the world around her. Luke chapter 1 verse 48 says that Mary was likely a humble servant. I mean, excuse me, she was a humble servant. And she was a true believer. Mary knew the word of God. Mary knew the word of God before all of this took place. In her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 55, Mary quotes or alludes to 15 Old Testament passages. She knew the scriptures. She knew the word of God. That speaks a lot. That tells us about her and Joseph's foundation. Their foundation was in the word of God. Their foundation was in the scriptures. Because you can't separate God and his word. If you're fully committed to God, you'll be fully committed to his word. If you're not fully committed to God, you will not be fully committed to his word. She pursued holiness. She pursued holiness. Remember, she was what? A virgin. She was a virgin, keeping her sexual purity before marriage. That is unheard of in our day and age, to keep your sexual purity before marriage. But that is the godly way. That is the biblical way. And that is how Christians are to live, is to maintain their sexual purity until the night of marriage. So she pursued holiness. She pursued obedience. And number one, most importantly, you know, the Roman Catholic Church venerates her, and it's just not biblical. Mary was a sinner. She was a sinner saved by grace. There was nothing divine about her. 
She never elicits being exalted or prayed to. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 47, she says this, and I quote, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices. Here it is. In God my Savior. She knew the grace of God. She knew the scriptures. And she was just like an everyday believer like us, just serving Christ, living for him getting into the word, and living her life for his glory. So there you have Mary. There you have Mary. We're, we're getting to the, to, the, to the bottom of the barrel in the eyes of the world. You know, um, looking at verse 4, Scripture gives us no details of their journey, whether it was on foot or donkey, we're not sure. But there was nothing weak about Joseph and Mary. They were rough, they were tough, and they were steadfast. They were immovable. As they made the 70-mile journey to Bethlehem. Ladies, imagine being pregnant and walking out the doors of Calvary Chapel, Irmo, and having to walk to Augusta, Georgia, pregnant. That's about the distance it would be from uh, Bethlehem to, uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's how far she had to walk. Pregnant. Maybe on a camel, maybe not. But what enabled Mary to make that long journey, to make that 70-mile journey? What, what enabled her? What empowered her and Joseph to do what they did? Because, you know, when, when, when mom gets pregnant, they want to nest. They want to rest. They want to prepare their body. They want to prepare their mind. They want to prepare their heart where they're at. But yet, they're traveling 70 miles. What enabled them to do this? They knew that they were on a mission from God. God had sovereignly revealed it to them through dreams, through visions, through the scriptures. And they were on a mission. And you and I, friends and family, we need to have that same determination in serving Christ. We need to be completely committed to him in the days to come. Because ungodliness is going to prevail, but that's no excuse. We need to maintain the biblical standard of serving Christ. When we serve Christ, we're, we're following his word. When we follow his word, we're serving Christ. You can't separate the two. Let's continue. Verse 6. In the eyes of the world, you know, the, the eyes of the, the Gentiles of the first century, we're at the bottom. We're at the very bottom. Verse 6 says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And what I want you to notice in verse 6 is the she. It says, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes. She laid him in a manger. There was no emergency room. There was no doctor. There was no nurse. There was no ice chips. There was no anesthesia. There was none of that. This was all on Mary. What an incredible woman of God, an incredible woman of strength, valor, and determination in serving the Lord and following Christ, following the Lord, is knowing what she was going to do. See, here we are by the world's standards at the bottom of the triangle. It doesn't get any lower 
than in a stinky barn in a a no-name city called Bethlehem on the outskirts five miles south of Jerusalem. It does not get any lower than this. A newborn baby frail and dependent on his mother, the poorest of poor, laying in a feeding trough for animals, dirty, smelly, a place of animals. Nothing could be lower. The manger is very fitting when you consider Jesus' life, when you consider his life, when you consider his ministry. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20 says, Foxes have holes. Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Truly, he came into this world, and that was the framework that he lived his life. He had nowhere to be born but in a manger. He had nowhere to lay his head. In his crucifixion, he's completely humiliated. And even in his burial, he's laid in a tomb that did not belong to him. He's laid in a borrowed tomb. The text says here in verse, it says in verse, the very end of verse 6, it says there was no room for them in the end. This is a precursor of the world today. Because people love their sin more, they make no room for Christ in their life. That's what it comes down to, is people in this world, when they're presented with the gospel, they love the things of the world more than they love Christ. And part of coming to Christ is we surrender our rights. We surrender what we consider is important. And we completely yield and surrender to the things of the Lord. That's a big sign. No room for you today, Lord Jesus, in our life is what hangs over many people's lives. And the Savior stands, knocks, and is is ready for them to come to him if they'll just repent, believe the gospel, and put their trust in him. Think about this, family. Think about the, the evening there in Bethlehem when Jesus is being born and he's laid in that manger. At that very moment that Jesus is laying in the manger, the king of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, is sleeping in his magnificent palace in a bedroom filled with luxurious gold furniture, sleeping in the finest linens, all tucked in nice and warm. People taking care of him, bathing him, uh, taking care of all his amenities. He's living in his quarters that are surrounded by the Praetorian Guard that he created. He's up on the hill. He's in his palace, sleeping in his golden bedroom, while at the same time, the sovereign king of the universe is in an outdoor animal trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes, surrounded by the smell of animal dung and outdoor elements. Jesus, Joseph, and Mary were at the bottom of the social class. They were outcast. They were nobodies. In Christ coming to this world and throughout his ministry, you could not get any lower, okay? And I, we, we celebrate Christmas and we rejoice because we know that he's on his throne in heaven and he's ruling and reigning. But that evening that this all took place, you need to understand the, the, the descent that he, he came into this world, into a trough, into a manger in Bethlehem where there was no, there was no, 
There was no place for him. It could not get any lower. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28 says this concerning the gospel and the message of Christ. It says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. See, the things of God are simple. And Christ came for all people. And if you claim to be full of worldly wisdom, you will be put to shame. Because the gospel is simple. And it's easy for all to understand if they'll just come to him and put their trust in him. But people who think they're, they're, they're wise in their own thinking, in, in, in their own mind, they will be the ones who are put to shame. People that scoff the Lord Jesus Christ. People that laugh at Christmas. People that ridicule his death on the cross. People that um, try to disprove his resurrection from the dead. One day, they will be put to complete shame if they don't come to their senses and put their trust in Christ. Because one day, they, as Hebrews 9.27 says, they will stand before him. They will stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want to close this morning with Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there or it will be up on the screen. But thinking about the, the descent in the eyes of the world, this, this literary structure that Luke presents us in verse 1 through 7, from the man on the throne to the trough, thinking about Jesus coming in the nativity in the Bethlehem, I want you to think about that as I read to you Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ came for no reputation, okay? Christ, Christ came for sinners. Christ came to show us how to make our way back to God because sin had broken it. But there was no reputation. This was, uh, um, he came very lowly and he came very humble to demonstrate that he was for all people. Then it says he took on the form of a bondservant. That word bondservant is a doulos, is a slave. You know, Paul's, Paul refers to himself as a bondservant of Christ, literally, he's a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can see in the book of Revelation that, uh, that John refers to himself as a bondservant also. They were slaves. They, they, were, um, they were slaves in the first century world. Now, when Christ came into this world, he came in this world to, be, to serve you. Not to be served, but to serve us all. To serve us salvation. To serve as salvation in Christ. And then at the end of verse 8, notice it says, And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That word in there, um, it says, obedient to the point of death. And then, and then it uses the phrase, even. You see that? That's that, it's that word that connects to the point of death, even the death on the cross. When Paul puts that word even in there, what he's saying is, even death on a cross. In the first century, the most, humiliating, the most humiliating way to die was through crucifixions. The Persians created crucifixion in 3rd century B.C. The Romans uh, 
perfected it, and it was meant to inflict the most pain. It was meant to be the most humiliating. You know, they say Jesus had a sign that said, this is Jesus of Nazareth. And why did he go down the Via Della Rosa? Why was he paraded through town? Because as he was being taken through town, as he was going from Jerusalem to Calvary, it was meant to be a sign to all the common people. If you defy Rome, this is what will happen to you. This is what will happen to you. So when he says even death on a cross, it could not get any lower than this in Jesus' death. Now, that takes us down low, okay? That takes us down low to where the cross is. And when we understand the cross, we ourselves will get low. We will humble ourselves, and we will put our trust in Christ. But the story doesn't end there, praise the Lord. The story doesn't end there. We know the story. We know what happened three days after his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He rose from the grave. He conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered grave. We can know what happens when we breathe our last breath because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And it's with that thought in mind that Paul continues in Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 9. After Christ humbled himself and went through a complete humiliation, it says in verse 9, Therefore God has also has highly exalted him. How did God the Father exalt the Lord Jesus Christ? Not only did God the Father physically, bodily, bring him back to life and resurrect him, but then he ascended And the Lord Jesus Christ, this one that was humiliated, this one that came in the manger, is now today seated at the right hand of the Father. He is exalted on God's heavenly, holy throne in heaven today. That's how God the Father exalted him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, and given him the name which is above every name. The scripture says in, I believe it's Acts 4.12, There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved, but at the name of Jesus. He came for our salvation. And if there's any one name that we need to know before we leave this life, it's the name of Jesus. And when you know the name of Jesus, it should connect you to his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. And being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, here, January 5th, we're going to start a study on the Holy Spirit. Why are we filled with the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus rose from the grave. And after he rose from the grave, he sent his Holy Spirit to be the representative. You see, in those three and a half years of ministry, the the disciples had Jesus right there with him. How awesome would that be to have Jesus right here with you? That would be amazing. But in John chapter 14... Jesus said, there's one that's going to come after after me who is equal with me after I leave this world, the Holy Spirit. See, you and I have the Holy Spirit in us and with us today. And Jesus said in John chapter 14, I'm going to show it to you on a Wednesday night in our study, that the Holy Spirit is equal with Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is with us. I was... Going off of verse 9, let's continue verse 10. It says, And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and those on earth and, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee is going to bow. One day, you're not going to have a choice. You will bow your knee. In this life or in the life to come, we will all bow our knee. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, if they knew on that night in Bethlehem, if they had seen the big picture, which I have a, you know, they, they did have revelation. They did have visions. And I'm sure they were, saw it, maybe a fuzzy picture through a stained glass window, a picture of what was taking place. But if they only knew what was going to take place in the manger that night was going to be the beginning of the ministry, which will end with the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, verse 11, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that was the heartbeat of the first century church. The heartbeat of the first century church was living in an ungodly world, ruled by Caesar Augustus, ruled by all these ungodly dictators, but their allegiance, their, their thing was, Caesar's not Lord. Quirinius is not Lord. Pontius Pilate's not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the meaning with Christ coming into this world and taking on flesh there in Bethlehem. That is the true meaning of Christmas. You know, where will we all be a hundred years from now? Every single one of us, within the sound of my voice, we will have stepped into eternity. What happens on the other side? What happens when you breathe your last breath? That is why Christ came into this world, to answer the big questions where do we come from? What happens when we die? And number one, what do we do with our sin? Jesus came to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins and give us new life. But in order for you to partake, it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't come by osmosis. You have to repent and believe the gospel. You have to say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I turn away from my sin. Lord Jesus, I put my trust in you, and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. In John chapter 1, it says, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. That is Christmas, and that is what we celebrate. If you haven't prayed to receive Christ, if you haven't put your trust in him, what are you waiting on? Put your trust in Christ. Turn from the old life, and he'll give you a brand new heart with brand new desires, and a brand new life. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And Lord, help us to remember the, 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 what really happened in that first century. The, the world as it was in the Roman world that was hostile to Christianity. And Lord, there was one king then on, on his throne in Rome, his name was Caesar, but then we see the true king coming from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. We'll see the true meaning of Christmas, and it will cause us to fall on our knees and worship you, Lord, and praise you and magnify you. And thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for the virgin birth. Thank you for coming into this world to save sinners. Lord, we love you and we praise you. 
In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen.